You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Star Advertiser has a front page story about how Navy Admiral Sam Paparo is being considered for the top job of, uh, as Chief of Naval Operations. It comes at a time when lawyers representing military and civilian families are suing over fuel contaminated drinking water and are asking to depose the Admiral over his response to the fuel spill at Red Hill. This morning, we talked to Christina Baer, one of the attorneys on the case, who says she plans to file additional claims next week. Our clients strongly oppose the nomination. I can't say that more strongly. They oppose his nomination to the highest officer position at the Navy, and it's outrageous and deeply upsetting to our clients because they feel forgotten. And we want to make this really clear. Admiral Paparo was personally responsible for what happened at Red Hill. It was under his command that the asset, the Red Hill fuel tanks, poisoned 93,000 people. And it's not just that it contaminated the water through negligence, that's one thing, but he was responsible for what happened after that. And the Navy didn't tell people to stop using the water, even once the Navy knew it was contaminated. And that happened on his watch. He is personally responsible for the Navy's failure to warn 93,000 people that their water was toxic. You know, and we know how the military comes and goes, you know, uh, based on their, you know, duty stations every few years. And he did come in just before the spill. He came in before the spill in May, but he was responsible for the aftermath. He was responsible for the failure to warn people that their water was contaminated. And the government failed to warn in three ways. First, they waited days. They waited until they had test results to tell people what they already knew, which was that the water was not safe. It's like people were in a burning building and the firefighters came and said, we know you smell smoke, but it's okay. Don't worry, stay where you are. That's what the Navy did here. They knew the water was contaminated and they let people stay in the burning building until they had a test result showing that it was in fact jet fuel. You have been trying to depose the Admiral in your lawsuit. Uh, Talk about what happens now and where you're at with that. Well, we've noticed his deposition, and the government filed a motion to protect him from deposition. They say he's too senior. That is not true, because in this case, he was directly involved in the aftermath of the Red Hill fuel spills. And he is the one who made those negligent decisions. So it happened on his watch. It's not just that he was supervising these people. He was actively involved in making these decisions about whether to tell people the water was contaminated, who to tell the water was contaminated, and what exactly to tell them. So I said that they failed to tell people that the water was contaminated. But even once they disclosed it, they only told some neighborhoods. They didn't tell everybody on the water line to stop using the water. And, you know, at a recent open house, the Navy says that the clinic that they stood up to deal with families who may still be dealing with symptoms due to the uh, ingestion of fuel, that very few people have actually turned up. And there is a concern about trust. You know, some civilians have an issue with going to the military with their concerns, their health concerns. Well, think about it from our client's perspective. They were smelling fuel in their water, and the Navy told them, don't worry about it, it's safe. Then they presented for symptoms, and they said, you know, I'm sick because I drank the water. And the Navy said, don't worry about it, it comes in and out of your system, you don't even need to come to the emergency room. You're totally fine, it's gonna be fine, there's no long-term symptoms. That clearly was not true. So you can't expect those patients to now want to see those same doctors. And make no mistake, I call that a fake clinic because it's no new doctors. It's the same doctors who were there before providing the same bad care. Now, just on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, it's impossible to get an appointment. I've had clients spend eight hours on the phone just to get an appointment and just to show up and be directed referred back to Tripler, which is where they started. So it's a fake clinic. It's providing bad care. And even the Navy's top medical officer, who I deposed, admitted that he understands why people don't go there. 
When we last chatted, that was at a meeting that you held and you were announcing that you had the first, I think, active duty Mm -hmm. personnel that had joined your lawsuit. Yes. And so where do things stand now? Well, we now represent 2,600 people and more and more every day. People need to file by November. That's a statute of limitations. We're trying to onboard as many people as we possibly can. We don't want to leave anyone behind. And active service members absolutely have a claim. Of course, we represent more family members and civilians um, because service members are more reticent to bring a claim, and that's understandable. But they absolutely have a claim. They were not on duty, as I told you then. They were not on duty when they were naked in their shower. They were not in the line of duty when they were naked in their shower. And so the Ferris Doctrine does not apply, and they have a claim against the United States. So we're accepting claims from both service members and their families and civilians. Anyone who was on the waterline in November 2021 has a claim, and the government has already admitted negligence and injury. So now it's just a question of how much. We'll be filing another 1,000 SF-95 claims next week. So stay tuned for that. And then the court is holding a hearing on the government's motion to protect Paparo, and that's happening next Wednesday. What's very important to me is that the government is insisting on deposing my child clients. So anyone who is over six at the time of the event, the government wants to depose. I asked them why. The government said they want to probe their fears. Think about that, they wanna probe their fears. Now, I've begged them not to depose children, but they have insisted. So my child clients are brave enough to stand up and testify to the representatives of the government that poisoned them. But Admiral Paparo isn't brave enough to have a deposition for a few hours by Zoom to speak the truth about what actually happened. How much does his testimony weigh on your case? It's important because my clients want to get to the truth. This case is about accountability and compensation, sure, but it's also about truth. And so it's critical to my clients that they know what happened and when. And it was the Admiral who was making those decisions. And the Admiral decided, you know, he was he, he was responsible. He should have known, he should have told people to stop using the water altogether. There, were, there are Navy handbooks on how to address water contamination, and they ignored every single rule in the book. They waited for test results to disclose it at all, And then when they disclosed it, they told people that it was okay to keep showering in the water when they knew better. They knew that they had to tell people to stop use altogether. But instead they said, you know, it's only affected some people on the waterline and not other communities. The the other communities are fine and don't worry, you can still shower, just don't drink it. Um, that That was all wrong according to their own policies. And that, that was Paparo. There were some families that were concerned because there were water samples taken from their units where they were living, and that some of those uh, samples then were destroyed, that they don't have the results uh, from some of those tests. So I want to be really clear about this. All of those samples were destroyed. Every sample that was taken at someone's house prior to flushing the system was destroyed. In legal words, we call that spoliation, the destruction of evidence, and we'll be asking the court for an adverse ruling. But the Navy chose to dispose of those test results, of those water samples, without testing them for petroleum products. So they took all the samples, they tested them for something called total organic compounds, and then they threw them out. So you would like to talk to the Admiral about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We want to talk to him about that, too. But the failure to warn people is absolutely still in the case. The government has admitted to the negligence of contaminating the water, but they have not admitted to the failure to warn. And it's the failure to warn that led to the poisoning of 93,000 people. This was entirely foreseeable and preventable. And even when they did warn, they didn't warn the people on the waterline who were farther out because they based their warnings on complaints from the neighborhoods. So think about that. Because they didn't get complaints early on from the people who were farther out, 
they didn't warn them. But you know as a matter of logic that that water is coming for them. So the people in Iroquois Point, the people on Ford Island, their poisoning was entirely preventable. And had Admiral Paparo made the right call and actually warned those people, they would not have been poisoned by the jet fuel because they would have been warned in time. That was attorney Christina Bear, who was representing the military and civilian families affected by the Red Hill fuel spill that resulted in contaminated drinking water. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, featuring LEED certification services for residential and commercial building projects. Learn more at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Tonight at 8 p.m. on HPR 2, Birds and Angels take center stage as the Hawaii Symphony, under the direction of Keitaro Harada, performs three dynamic works by Japanese composer Takashi Yoshimatsu and saxophone virtuoso Tad Yukumoto will perform Nikolai Kapustin's Alto Saxophone Concerto, Opus 50. That's tonight on HPR 2 at 8 p.m. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. We've been hearing a lot this year about gun permits and safety, but on Kauai recently, there's talk about pepper spray. It's been in the news. HPR's uh, reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us in the studio to discuss changing regulations. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So unlike every other county to legally own pepper spray on Kauai, a resident needs a permit, and it's a $5 permit that's issued through the Kauai Police Department, and it requires an application um, and a mental health and criminal background checks. So it's pretty intensive to go through this process. And Councilmember Kipukai Kuuli'i co-introduced the bill, and he and a few other council members were at a community meeting discussing the missing and murdered Indigenous women's report. And a woman had come up and was speaking at this meeting, and the bill kind of came out as a way to kind of address that person's um, concerns about being able to defend themselves. So he says it was inspired by this community member speaking. So what this bill does, it repeals the existing Chapter 22, Article 15, in its entirety, and that was the chapter on obnoxious substance, um, where you have to get a permit from the chief of police to have an obnoxious substance device um, or pepper spray. And it's being um, replaced with a new chapter entitled Possession and Use of Pepper Spray for Self-Defense or Defense of Others. So in this new article, it allows for the sale and use of pepper spray in volumes no greater than two ounces when contained in a device that prevents accidental release and is non-flammable. Um, and then the device, um, um, the article also allows for the use of pepper spray for self-defense, defense, defense of others, and for the protection of property. Um, lastly, exceptions for certain government entities and private organizations are provided, as well as um, penalties for violations. And as the bill is currently written, the penalty for violations is about $2,000. But the multi-step process has been a barrier for some to get pepper spray. I know for me, from my own experience when I lived on Kauai, it was a deterrent for me to get pepper spray. It's to, a hassle. <laughs> to go down to the police station, fill out this three-page form. They try to make it as simple as possible with an online form, but it's still a lot of steps you have to take. Yeah, some might say, well, that was a, that was a, a, a 
obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Because on Oahu, buying pepper spray is as easy as going to a security supply store and purchasing it over the counter. So Council Chair Mel Raposo is a former police officer and private investigator. He said there were times the delayed permit could impact the safety of an individual. And in some cases, it may be quicker to file for a temporary restraining order. This is long overdue. Uh, You know, this bill, this ordinance was passed many, 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 many years ago. Um, Before we even had pepper spray, we we had the old chemical mace. And we're the only county here in Hawaii that required a permit. And our permit wasn't something you get uh, over the counter. You you basically have to sign a release for your medical, mental records, and a background check was done. And for those that are, uh, and you know, it's not even female or male, it's any victim of family abuse or any type of uh, violent crime. Uh, you could get a TRO, but you wouldn't be able to get a permit. If, you, if the, uh, the incident occurred uh, on the evening of Friday or throughout the weekend, uh, you would not be able to get a permit to acquire the pepper spray. And, and the other thing is because of this, this law that, that was in place prior to this, um, this bill, uh, no one would have it. No one would sell it because there was no market for it. So with this bill, uh, should it pass, everyone, every adult will have access. And, uh, and I would assume that a lot of our, our stores now will start to carry it where there will be absolutely no delay. So was the thinking then that this could be used by someone for no good as opposed to you know, protecting someone's safety? Yeah, it sounds like uh, when it was first installed, it was more of like more obnoxious substances, like something more chemical, whereas pepper spray now is a it's a non-lethal defense weapon. Right. So that's kind of the thinking now. And they've been trying to do this. Council member Felicia Cowden, who is the only female on the council, uh, she had asked for a similar bill when she was first elected a few years ago, and she wasn't able to get it off the ground. So we're happy to see it kind of moving along this time around. And so did you find that was true, that there were just very few places that were willing to sell it? (laughs) Well, I remember people would ask me if I wanted pepper spray, and it was kind of like an underground market, kind of like, Uh. oh, you can... Like, I know a guy who knows a guy. I have an <laughs> uncle who can get you pepper spray if you, if you want it uh, without having to go through this permit route. So I think most people that I knew who had pepper spray didn't have a permit. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of black market for pepper spray. Yeah. But yeah, uh, interesting story. Uh, interesting that they're the only county uh, that required that. Mm-hmm. So Curious. the bill will be up for second and final reading on Wednesday. Okay. All right, we'll see what happens. But thank you very much. Thank you, Catherine. We've been talking to HBR Sabrina Bowden about permits for pepper spray that may go by the wayside on the island of Kauai. You can find Sabrina's stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reality check today. We take you to an Oahu cemetery. Honolulu uh, Civil Beat Politics and Opinion editor Chad Blair joins us. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a story by uh, Kirsten uh, Downey. Yeah, and it's um, it's really a dramatic opening to, um, as you say, it's a cemetery, specifically Sunset Memorial Cemetery. It's in Pearl City, and and she opens up with some pretty pretty grim images having visited there spoke to people walked around the, the grounds the cemetery itself uh was uh, it, the owner died 12 years ago and so it's really now in ruins there hasn't been anybody very few people anyway to keep it up homeless people have taken over uh, they've smashed tombstones uh, they've actually broken into crypts it looks like actually they have slept there uh, there's been looting of bodies uh, for jewelry. I know it's grim stuff. Um, they, there was even a building uh, because of an arsonist that was burned down, and that that held records, burial records of some of the people that 
that were interned there. And so uh, even for, for a while, to, to, just add insult to injury, it was even an open-air drug den. So so Kirsten is uh, reporting on um, what efforts are being done by community members, by lawmakers, to try and to protect this cemetery, to protect the people that uh, that are buried there. Yeah, I mean, it's been a chronic problem. I recall, I think, doing stories where someone mm. bought a plot and went to go bury someone, and someone else was in that uh, particular area. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's a mess. One of the things that Kirsten does nice is she has a real uh, grasp of, of history, and she, she did look into the archives, and the cemetery's origins go back well over a century. There's even some people that are famous that were buried there, uh, and it's had a controversial history. It's As development has grown up around it, as you can imagine, it's fallen into neglect. But back in the day, apparently it was a very beautiful and tranquil a place to visit. Um, she, uh, Christian, does a good job of profiling the Pearl City Neighborhood uh, Board Chair, who's really trying to get government to help. The problem is, it's a, an enormous bureaucracy to untangle. Uh, he himself, by the way, the chair doesn't have any relatives of his own buried there. He just believes you should honor the dead and you should protect their remains, uh, as seems to be just the obvious thing to do. Yes, and uh, one of the people that uh, Kirsten reports on, uh, George Galbraith, right? Galbraith Estate right. on the North Shore. Yeah, so he, I didn't know that he was buried there. Yeah, and it appears there was some interesting history in terms of what happened to his remains. Um, Greg Takayama, the state representative, uh, has also been trying to come up with solutions. His district, because of reapportionment, now includes that cemetery. Takayama's trying to find a way to install a fence and a gate, maybe limit the access during daytime hours to the cemetery. Uh, there was also a resolution passed by the House to get the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, DCCA, right, mm-hmm. to look into things and see what they can do. Uh, the governor, excuse me, the attorney general is involved as well. Uh, so there are still some efforts. Uh, could the state even possibly uh, take over the cemetery? Uh, one of the things that I was surprised to learn is that the state actually has control over six six defunct cemeteries uh, in Hawaii. Yes, and uh, I think by law they're supposed to have like funeral um, uh, trust funds, right, uh, to help keep the place going. Um, yeah, they, and that's difficult right now. What's happened is folks from the Lions Club, the local churches, uh, Eagle Scouts, veterans groups, they actually have been showing up and trying to do yard work and, and take care of trash. And, and that's a that's a terrific thing that is happening there. Uh, Kirsten actually spoke to people who went on Memorial Day, you know, mm. vis- relatives visiting, leaving flowers. There are, uh, by her count, 5,000 plots uh, at the cemetery. That's multiple local generations that are buried there and heard she heard from many folks that just really lament uh, the rundown condition of the facilities yeah I mean it's a shame and so hopefully with the AG's uh, involvement that th- there could be some way forward yeah let's hope so and I should just I just want to add something here uh, you're right that this story has been reported on in the past and and but this is the latest development, and that's something I think that's important to stress. It's sometimes we report on things, and then we let it go, right? We don't mm-hmm. go back and visit and see whether there's been any progress. This particular story on the cemetery uh, came from a visit uh, by Civil Beat's uh, newsroom uh, to the Pearl City Library, and uh, that's where we get a lot of good stories uh, to follow up. And we'll see what happens now. I think one other thing I would add is maybe a nonprofit could take over management of the cemetery as well. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, there's got to be a better way. But thank you so much, Chad. Sure enough. We've been talking to uh, Chad Blair for our reality check. You can read Kirsten Downey's story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the National Kidney Foundation of Hawaii, accepting vehicle donations for its Kidney Cars program, helping to reach the more than 200,000 island residents at risk of or affected by kidney disease. KidneyHI.org. I'm Marco Werman. We're living through history, and the world's newsroom has the first draft. If journalists leave a scene, it becomes a black hole. Then the world doesn't find out what's happening. And when the world doesn't know what's happening, 
human sympathy also evaporates. Looking for answers and making sense of global events as they happen. Join us on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, a member-based community for ages 50 and older, with a variety of virtual courses in its summer 2023 online catalog. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Oahu native Matthew Losey examines the impact Hollywood has had over the years on how Polynesians are viewed by the rest of the world. It's called White Lens on Brown Skin, the Sexualization of the Polynesian in American Film. Losey is part Native Hawaiian and was raised in Hawaii and Washington State. He holds a master's degree in Pacific Island Studies and spent over two decades behind the camera in Hawaii's film industry. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Losey about why he wrote the book. In your book... Mm -hmm you say that its purpose is threefold. And the first is to demonstrate the general popularity of Polynesians and their cultures in American popular feature film. At Mm -hmm. what point did you start to become interested in taking a closer look at Polynesian generalizations in film and mass media? I got a phone call from Ed Rampell, who (laughs) wrote the uh, foreword to my book. And he was at that point, a journalist, but he was interested also on the side as what we call South Sea cinema, that is movies or, you know, TV shows or any motion picture type that was set in Hawaii or the Pacific, not necessarily filmed here, but set here representing the islands, right? So he heard that I made up a list writing down all the titles that pertain to Polynesia or the Pacific. Then Ed called me and called DeSoto Brown from Bishop Museum. He knew that DeSoto had an interest in this. And uh, there was one more gentleman who was the state archivist who has passed away. But the four of us got together and we formed the South Sea Cinema Society. The mission of that society is exactly what you said, do a deeper dive into what are these movies saying or what are they portraying. So the first thing we had to do is major research and find out what these titles are in the first place. You know, and we found over 800 movies. We found that this is a legitimate genre that's not recognized. You know, it's just like a monster movie or a mafia movie, you know. So we call it South Sea Cinema. So our mission was to first to get it out hey, everybody, there's a a genre we're kind of missing. But then the other part is what's in the genre? (laughs) You know, what does it represent? You know, Hollywood versions of the islands, basically. So that's the deeper dive. And then when I went back to school, I knew my thesis had to be on this subject. The deeper meaning of these films eventually came up, the sexualization of the Polynesian in American film, which is basically what the book is. I added a lot more chapters to it since my thesis. I did read in your book that the idea for it, like you like you just mentioned, first materialized as your thesis proposal while at UH. When you started sharing your research and ultimately your thesis proposal, what were the reactions to this proposal that you had? I had an interesting reaction. It was pretty negative. I thought this is a great and kind of a original subject, a subject that needed to get out there. But then when I did little presentations to my fellow graduate students, there was a negative reaction. And then when my thesis committee, which were three professors, one female Hawaiian professor, and she said to me, "You have to be, you have to be careful because." When you're presenting this subject, you're actually mimicking what you're writing against. 
people exploiting these nude images of Polynesians. The way to present this important issue is not to show the visual examples, but just to write about it. And I expressed to my publisher that, you know, they wanted some pictures. I said, well, I told them my story and I said, I'll give you pictures, but they're going to be rated G. You know, just to show that these titles, these plots, these storylines are out there, uh, but not necessarily exploiting the female body like the Hollywood would do, right? As I read more, it got me thinking, you know, the sexualization of the Polynesian in media is something I think that we're all aware of, but maybe something many of us have gotten numb to or kind of just accepted as normal. But when I Googled Hawaiian woman today, the overwhelming Mm -hmm. majority of the images that pop up on the first page are of women in bikinis or revealing hula attire. I think maybe mm-hmm. there was one photo of Queen Liliuo Kalani and Auntie Edith Kanaka Ole. And so I think we kind of all know this, but I feel like this is the first time that someone is pointing at it. Which brings me to the second purpose of your book, to bring discriminatory attitudes and incorrect sexual representations of the Polynesian to the forefront with numerical data, historical facts, and analytical theories In your research for your thesis, for your book, what did you find to support that thesis? Well, first to you, because of my South Sea cinema background, there's 20 years of research of actually watching these films. (laughs) It's important. I'm just not writing words down. And while watching them, you see right in front of you the evidence. That's the analytical part. Why are they showing these images? You know, what are they trying to get out of them? Basically profit. But in general, in American society, in the American audience, it's really subliminal what's going on on the screen because they've been raised with it their whole life and their parents and their grandparents. These images are all over. So you kind of take them for granted. You don't think much about them, but, you know, you should think about it. So... Back to the the evidence, I think I've documented 152 movies with specific scenes and the analytical commentary, why were these scenes necessary, and they usually aren't, (laughs) except for, you know, profit-making. From the early history of filmmaking, one of the three issues to make money is the romance or sex aspect of story, so... Besides, you know, popular biographies and a couple other subject matters, but sex was an important one. Even pre-early days of film, during the talkies, it was a big issue. So there was not a better subject matter to American audience than the modern Polynesian or even the historical Polynesian, the past Polynesian. You could get away with showing the hula skirts and the leg were outside of the theater Women who go to the beach have to wear suits that are covering them down to their ankles and full-sleeve suits. So why is it different? Why can you get away with showing Polynesians? And they could get away with it. So that's one reason it became a very popular genre. When we think about some of the most iconic movies set in Hawaii, especially in the early days, we think of you know the Elvis Presley movies, Blue Hawaii mm-hmm. And so this brings me to the third purpose of your book, which is to create a new awareness leading to the correction of centuries-old tropes of the people of Oceania to expose the causes of demeaning psychological wounds, specifically in film, caused by outside political, religious, and commercial forces used to dominate the indigenous Pacific Islanders historically, then hopefully we can begin to mend. So... What do you think that healing process will look like? Well, first, it's got to be brought out. It's got to hit the attention of people. I hate to use the analogy, slap their face, wake them up. Just look what you're watching. And you have the evidence, you have the data, tons of titles, tons of scenes. You can even see the visuals of them. This is what's out there for generations So first you have to recognize that it's right in front of you and recognize the deeper meaning 
of the images you're watching. You may like it, especially being a male American, but well, how about from the Polynesian perspective? How do they feel, you know? And that's kind of helped me in my being raised by my Hawaiian hula dancer mom. And, uh, you know, she experienced racism and disproportionate pay and all kinds of bad things in the society with her being, uh, you know, racially different. So I have that perspective. I was raised in the mainland, so I have that perspective, too. But I, I have the perspective of an islander. And so a lot of the book, as you notice, is from the native perspective. So a lot of the arguments in the book or the analysis is from that point of view. And once they're aware of it, that they need to be more sensitive to it and to other people and the representations that they're creating about other people, they have to be aware of what they're doing. So once they're aware of it, then you can begin the turnaround you can get the audience to say, oh, I see what you're trying to say. I see what you're trying to do. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm glad, like Moana or some of the new movies out that don't depict Polynesian women sexually. They depict them as just like anybody else with intelligence, with foresight, with a deeper meaning in life, and not just a sex symbol. You can see some changing going on in Hollywood, and that's, that's good. That was author Matthew Losey talking with HBR's Russell Subiono about his new book entitled White Lens on Brown Skin, The Sexualization of the Polynesian in American Film. It's available now through McFarland Publishing. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way Women United, committed to helping strengthen women and women-led families on Oahu. Grant applications now being accepted, auw.org slash women united. In July, Florida will ban smartphones in every public school classroom in the state. They cannot help but sneak over to different websites, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, they cannot resist it, so we need to have some level of control. How smartphones impact learning and whether banning them from the classroom is the answer. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, assisting clients with building and energy code compliance, featuring LEED certification services. GreenBuildingHawaii.com is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. The Big Island's Gemini Telescope discovers more about a Type II supernova first spotted by an amateur astronomer in Japan. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence for your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive and fascinating universe surrounding our tiny planet, and also stuff we might be able to spot ourselves in the sky. And thankfully, we've got our resident astronomer, Christopher Phillips, on the line right now. And uh, hey, Chris, welcome back. What is in your bag of tricks this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, look out for Venus in the western sky after sunset. It's still there. It's quite bright and easy to spot. The moon this week will be passing through its last quarter phase, and so conditions for stargazing will be perfect towards week's end. We are revisiting our recent supernova story, and it has, of course, a fun local connection. 
Yeah, so we're going to follow on from the recent discovery of a supernova in the Pinwheel Galaxy by an amateur astronomer in Japan. The Gemini Observatory atop Mauna Kea has followed up with a spectacular science image of the galaxy, including the supernova, which immediately stands out from all the other stars in this particular galaxy. Serendipitous for sure, right? Because Gemini has been off sky for a while now, yeah? Yeah, the 8-meter telescope has been unable to observe for many months now following accidental damage to its primary mirror. However, since then, the telescope has been repaired and came back on sky just in time to capture the aftermath of this cosmic cataclysm. Well, supernovas are so cool, and I'm hoping you know a little bit more about this one. What's the story? Yeah, they are indeed. And this one is what we call a Type 2P supernova. Now, a Type 2 supernova is also known as a core collapse supernova. This is when a massive star, many times more massive than our own sun, reaches the end of its relatively short and violent life. After exhausting its supply of fuel, the star collapses in on itself because it's not capable of supporting its own weight, so to speak. This collapse triggers a massive explosion, a type 2 supernova, and that's what we're seeing here. Thankfully, that doesn't happen to our sun, huh? That would be a really nasty (laughs) thing if that was to suddenly occur, like, tomorrow. Well, luckily, we don't have to worry about that because our sun is definitely not the type to go supernova. But seriously, this is how baby black holes are born, right? Yeah, it is indeed. But there are also other objects that can be formed from this type of events, such as a neutron star. This all depends on how massive the progenitor star was before it collapsed. And with Gemini back on sky, as the uh, astronomer people like Christopher like to say, and their shiny new mirror and all their kit, as you also like to say in the UK, are they going to just keep their eye on this? Or maybe they've got other stuff up there considerable sleeve. (laughs) Well, there's definitely a backlog of things to look at, considering they've been off sky, but right now, Gemini is primed for more follow-up observations in the near future. The great thing about this particular type of supernova is that it will be visible for many weeks as it slowly fades. This is a great time to get detailed spectra of the event that can tell us all sorts of interesting things about the nature of the progenitor star and also the aftermath of this spectacular event. Fingers crossed we'll hear more on a future Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. You know, we've heard about the push to make ulu flour more available for home bakers and chefs, but now there's macadamia nut flour on the menu. Maria Short is the co-founder of Kipuka Mills and co-owner of Hilo Short and Sweet Bakery and Cafe. We talked to her about a new door that's open for the business with the safe quality food certification for their roasted mac nut products. Kipuka Mills has been around officially 2019. We participated in Mana Up which I'm sure you know is the business accelerator, and they actually helped us get our first piece of equipment. We didn't know how far we could go with that piece of equipment, and then we got investors, and with them, we were able to purchase more equipment, and so now we actually press the nuts and make the oil and sell the oil, sell the butter, and sell the flour. So nothing from the magna goes to waste. We were supposed to launch in 2020, but then everybody knows what happened. We are choosing to look at it as this is a silver lining. We've got all our ducks in in the row, and now we're able to launch this product and approach national companies, you know, not just within this economy, which we would love to even get, you know, a foothold in, in Hawaii as well, but we want to be able to get this out to everyone. When I first started, Melly James from Mana Up had said to me, she says, you know, Maria, I think this could be your legacy. And I said, I hope so. As a pastry chef, having something different and new to work with is just, it's phenomenal. And there's nothing like this. There is no, like, that can deliver the mac nut flavor like this. And so it was just, I don't know if you read the story about what, on the website, how it came to be, but I had a friend that was making the oil, and he came to me with this leftover cake. At the time, I didn't know what it was. And he said to me, you know, you want this? And I said, what is it? And he said, it's what's left over from the pressing. I said, well, what is it? He, I said, he says, it's magnets. I said, nothing else? He said, no. 
And I said, there's nothing. I said, it's pure Mac nuts. He's like, yeah. And I said, give me that. <laughs> I was like, you're just, what are you doing with it? He said, we're throwing it out or just putting it in the garden or compost or feeding the pigs. I said, oh, my God, no. So that's how it started. And it's pure Mac nuts. In fact, it's pure Mac nuts without the oil. So it it is a much more shelf stable, much more usable because it's that's part of what makes mac nut, macadamia nuts more difficult to use is their high um, oil content. But since we defat it before we you know it becomes a flour, then it acts like almond flour or coconut flour. It's just so much more usable that way. So you looked at it and saw gold. Oh yeah. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm Filipino, first generation Filipino, and we you don't waste food. So it was just like, no, 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 no. Yeah, I I, saw, I was just like, what? And so, my goodness, I think that was probably eight, nine years ago now. I think at the different uh, folks that we have featured on this show, you know, during the pandemic, and what the pandemic did was it just showed everybody how important sustainability is and agriculture. It elevated, you know, the importance of buying local uh, and mm-hmm. feeding ourselves and, 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 and growing, you know, what was it? What's, what's the, the, the line that the new agriculture director is grow what we eat and eat what we grow. When I was looking at your website and I was looking at the products and my, my mouth was salivating because th- those look like fabulous recipes that w- we can all try and elevate eating. I'm looking forward to it. So share with our listeners, what does it taste like? It is very potent. It is very potent. It tastes like roasted macadamia nuts. Mm. Uh, the flour itself, you don't need a lot. Using 100% macadamia flour is almost too much. There are a few things on there that we use. I have a chocolate tea cake that I use, and it's gluten-free, and it uses 100% macadamia flour, and it is phenomenal. I like it. I'm on this. I'm on this kind of modified keto, modified paleo kind of diet. I love it because it ups the protein content of whatever I'm doing. So I make I make these things called chaffles with it. At the shop, we have several items that we call gluten-friendly, which means they're made without any wheat flour, and they're made completely with macadamia nut flour. There's savory applications as well as sweet applications. We, Since we're a bakery, we do mostly sweet stuff, but we have been using it for, it, I've we tried to make a bechamel with it, where it's fine. Um, we've done, uh, people have done, you know, mac nut encrusted, instead of using crushed up mac nuts, which don't always stick very well. They use the flour and they said it was phenomenal. Somebody made, a friend of mine made fried chicken with it. And he said it was the best fried chicken he'd ever had. Well, you know, we have seen in, in some of the restaurants, right, uh, mac nut crusted fish. You could just really use that flour in so many dishes. You know, and I'm thinking there's a big push right now to serve more local food in our schools. Yes. So it opens the doors yes. there. So the oil is wonderful. The oil is extremely shelf stable. It's actually pretty neutral in flavor. You don't you don't really even taste mac nut until like very very end, and it's slight. We use it all the time here for cooking. Like I use that. It's it has less of a flavor than even like olive oil, and we don't do anything to it. It's just pressed and then bottled. Right now we don't we don't have a bottling line, so we're not selling the oil in retail sizes at this point. But we are looking into getting more equipment. It's so hard here because you have to really, like, educate your consumers and your clientele and let them know that this is here and this is a good way to get to where you want to be, you know, where we all should be. And you're doing also the uh, sweet potato flour? So the sweet potato flour, we slice, dehydrate, and then mill. And so it's, it is a raw product. It needs to be cooked before it's, you know, you can't just throw it into something that... So like at uh, the shop, we'd make something called halaya, which is the Filipino ube jam. We just make it with sweet potato. We've also put it in our, in our sweet bread. And you're looking to get the certification for that product as well? Yes, yes. The, you know, the first one's always the hardest. So hopefully we'll get that quicker. But when we got the certification, I felt like I had just gotten my uh, approved for my, my master's thesis just got approved. Okay. It was so hard. It was, it, was not, it was not an easy thing to do. Now that you have it, like you said, it can open up doors, uh, new markets for you. Uh, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I think they've got Hawaii on the Hill 
where they showcase a lot of Hawaii products. I don't know if you're involved in that. You know, you've got Pop-Up Makeke where, you know, they're really trying to get Hawaii products in the in the limelight. Yeah, right now we're in Oahu Farm Link is the only one, is the only place that, that you can find our products in Oahu. On the big island, we pretty much have all of the, you know, Island Naturals and Locavore stores and, and Kohala Grown, all of the, those, the, stores that carry locally grown products. We have all of that on the Big Island. But on Oahu, we only have FarmLink. So we're hoping to to be carried by more stores in Oahu. And what's the most satisfying thing for you at the end of the day when you see now how far you've come? Oh, there's so many. (laughs) The most satisfying. Um, You know, at Short and Sweet, we use the flour. And we label them gluten-friendly, so it's not for someone that's severely celiac. But when someone comes into the shop that previously couldn't really eat anything from uh, short and sweet, then and they say, oh, my God, you guys have so many gluten-free stuff that I can eat. And, I, you know, thank you so much because I, I understand. Like, if somebody told me I couldn't have dessert, you know, or anything with fire for the rest of my life, or something, you know, it'll make you feel bad afterwards. I would be really sad. (laughs) So to me, it's just like, and I want that for everybody. I want people to have, you know, there's, there's room for everything. And I feel like this will really open up, you know, markets, open it up for people to be able to say, okay, yeah, I can eat that. I can eat that. That was Maria Short, co-founder of Kipuka Mills, which just earned federal certification for its macadamia nut flour milled on the Big Island. Short is also the pastry chef of Hilo's Short and Sweet Bakery and Cafe. Tomorrow, we talk all kinds of people playing all types of music in various places all in one day. Sounds like a lot of fun. Got feedback for us? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.